This is Alex. I'm from Boston. Hello, this is Jackie, and I'm from Houston. Hey, this is Rahul from Stanford. And we are the Premier Chess. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Premier Chels, your source for all things Premier League, but starting with Chelsea first. Coming to you on your speakers and headsets, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Guys, we have Ben Jacobs back on the podcast. We have a lot to cover today, so I'm going to pass it over to Rahul to get it kicked off. Welcome back, Ben. It's great to great to back, have you back on. Uh, I wanted to start one place and one place only, which is Mason Mount, uh, Chelsea through and through, come through the academy, one of the few players actually in our squad right now from the academy, but one that I think we see as Chelsea fans see is one that has a lot of potential. We obviously wanted to stay, but his contract runs out in 2024. There's a lot of rumors, news, stories. Uh, so I wanted to hear from you what you've heard and you know where you think this is headed, especially going into the summer. Yeah, good to be back. And I think that from Mason Mount's perspective, he'd love to be back at Chelsea under a new contract as well. But there's financial considerations and personal considerations. So the situation is that Mason Mount has rejected two offers so far and some say more. It all depends whether we're talking about formal offers or just back and forth. But I think that it's accurate to say that Mason Mount has turned down multiple contract renewals and the situation now has dragged on. And because the parties haven't been able to come to an agreement, it has stalled and been parked until towards the end of the season, which isn't too far away, but is significant because it opens the door to suitors to start themselves planning for summer. And Liverpool in particular can be seen as very genuine suitors. And from Mount's perspective, it's a big contrast now between the mood and his form last season and now. And that obviously impacts the situation as well, because he's had some time to look at Graham Potter, the new ownership, those that are competing for places in the side. And unfortunately, Mount hasn't had that consistency of game time. And when he has played, he's been unable to replicate the goal scoring feats of last season and this i think is what makes it so complicated that when the parties first started talking and even before the new ownership group were in they had two key internal player priorities to renew reese james and to renew mason mount and james got done and those talks with mount started early and of course it was a priority on behalf of the old regime as well, they were just unable to move. And that was a byproduct of the outgoing Roman Abramovich and the sanctions on Chelsea and so on. But Mount went into all of this, rightly so, valuing himself based upon his form, based upon his age, based upon his talent, based upon his longevity at Chelsea. But it's taken so long now that his role in the team and his form has changed. And as a consequence, even though Chelsea want to hang on to Mason Mount, there's almost a different criteria here. And therefore, Chelsea need to work out the best way of enticing Mount to stay, but sticking to their own strategy. And now when Chelsea are renewing, that strategy is longer term contracts. It's incentive driven. 
because they ultimately want to give players the ability to earn handsomely but lower the overall wage bill and on top of that there are decreases as well such as if Chelsea don't qualify for the Champions League so Mount basically wants a slightly different package both structurally and financially and at the moment the parties are far apart in their valuations so the latest is essentially that Chelsea will up and out the scenario of Mount staying he's been at Chelsea since he was six he loves Chelsea and therefore there still is that possibility that the sides come to an agreement and all of the outside noise and suitors are just being used as leverage that's one possibility by the way contrary to some reports that Chelsea have pre-agreed Mount's exit already and that he's somehow definitely leaving it has to be discussed and it will progress over the coming months but on the flip side people realize that there is a bargain available here because whatever the final fee is due to the contract situation if mount goes whoever is successful in signing him will get the player at a very decent number and this is exactly what chelsea are trying to avoid players that are into those final two years of their contracts that can leave for a comparatively low amount compared to their worth because you can't hold out for the figure that you would want if you were going to sell due to the fact that there's less time on the contract and that's where we're at for now and i think that the uncertainty is certainly impacting mount on and off the field but make regardless of what happens chelsea love mount they want to keep mount they realize that he's at the right age and profile and when confident both on and off the field is a huge influence and as a result it's about helping him rediscover his form between now and the end of the season so he's happier about his football and in the meantime Mount will be looking at the project looking at who's challenging him for a place looking at the money that has been on the table and working out whether his team can improve that package and this is what is breeding uncertainty and allowing other suitors to start moving in the market. So it's quite open at the moment. It is quite uncertain at the moment. But the top line and very key point is that Chelsea have not said, we're going to let Mount go. We're definitely selling him. So there's not like an open invitation at this point for suitors to come and negotiate with Chelsea. They will continue to try and get Mount to sign but it is unclear at the moment whether they'll be able to succeed despite the fact that if the terms are right mount loves chelsea and it then would be a very quick deal to get done but at the moment the terms are not right the structure is not right and mount will have a variety of other options not only because he's a fantastic player in dressing room influence but anyone looking for value is going to find that in the market with mason mount due to the contract situation Ben, I have a quick question around that. And I know we talked about the finances and maybe the package overall. I'm curious about the length of contracts. I know we've talked about this as a as a good strategy from Chelsea's side, because especially when you're bringing in a new player, you can kind of spread the cost of that player over X amount of years. With Mason Mount, there is no cost as far as transfer fees. Is there any hang-up on a long-term contract versus maybe a shorter-term contract? Is that something you've heard about? Well, I don't think this is about amortization for the reasons that you've outlined. It's more when you tie a player down to a long-term contract, you're buying that loyalty. 
right in doing so you're also protecting the value which is equally as important so if we look at moises caicedo for example who still could go in the summer the whole point of brighton renewing him it was not only to offer improved terms and keep the player happy in the short term but it ensures that if you do then end up selling the price goes up and theoretically we could see this with Jude Bellingham, who doesn't have a release clause at the moment, which means it's a bit more atypical, but he could sign a new deal and still leave in the summer, but that new deal could impact the price. So the long-term contracts are there to lock in assets effectively, because then if they succeed, regardless of the side of things, you know that you've got them long enough to be able to always make a profit if another offer comes in and the player wants that move. But in addition to that, some of the terms in that long-term contract may actually be beneficial to the club. So I think Mount's a bit more of an anomaly because it will be wanting to be one of Chelsea's best earners. So the base wage, regardless of what deal gets done, if Chelsea succeed in renewing Mount, will be high compared to other members in the squad. And that's normal because Mason Mount is not an 18-year-old. But generally speaking, with the longer-term contract, what you're trying to do is, as per Mudrick, buy a talent that you think in a year or two might be elite at Premier League level. And that 97,000 and maybe less if Chelsea don't make Champions League football will be a bargain. And because the contract's so long, can the player ask for a renewal after year one or year two? And the answer may be no. And this is the whole debate, because anyone that performs at elite level will know that they then become worth 200,000 or more. So if they're only on 97,000, are they going to just accept that for another season or two and ask for their renewal three, four years into a seven, eight, nine year contract? Or after a year or two, are they going to point out that all their numbers, all their game time, all their value involves a bump? And this, again, is where the incentive aspect can help because it's not always black and white. So every contract can be different. But obviously, Chelsea don't have to just say it's 97 or nothing for two, three years. It could go up in staggered ways. It could go down, by the way, in staggered manners for older players too. Or it could just be incentive driven, whereby you trigger an increase in wage based on how well you do on the football field. But I think with Mount's length of contract, it won't be about eight, nine years based upon financial fair play. It will be more to lock him down during what's considered to be the peak age bracket of his career to the point where if in that juncture anyone did come in, there is protected value. So the eventuality of Mount leaving, as per now, will not repeat itself whereby he can be sold comparatively to his actual value at a bargain from the perspective of the buyer and the seller doesn't get a great deal because the contract's winding down. So that's kind of the main reason for the length of contract. But also, you still know with a player like Mount, there's a high ceiling. Locking down for longer and having those incentives, there's a possibility, should he rediscover his form and even improve upon that form, that still, even if you've paid him a high base wage or thrown in things that are more beneficial to the player than the club, you've actually locked it in at a rate where if there is an improvement, you've still got 
value. And this is what Chelsea are thinking about all the time. Everything that they pay out, whether it's transfer fee, whether it's wage, whether it's incentives, they want to see as investments, not expenses. And by that, they mean you buy young, so the transfer fee will hopefully pay for itself over time. If you pay high, you have to be clear that what you're getting back is an investment, not an expense, which again is why you buy younger and also try and man manage and develop players in a way where if you are overpaying or putting down something financially that's competitive, the player will grow into that value because you believe in their potential. And you can't always do that unless you lock the player in for the long term and they show you that loyalty back. So there's a variety of different reasons, really, and it's different player on player and case by case as to why you'd want a long-term contract, as to why you'd want incentive driven. But generally speaking, there's a pattern here for everybody, which is anyone coming into the football club has to be prepared to buy into the model. And the model is a lowering of the average age. The model is a lowering of the average wage. And the model is an ability to earn handsomely based upon incentives, but decreases to protect the club and its finances if things like Champions League football don't happen. And there's teething problems really with all of this because Manchester United, for example, have always had that Champions League decrease clause. Chelsea didn't under Abramovich. So if you're an old regime player, then there's an expectation of what a renewal entails. And again, if you're Mount, you might be looking at Rhys James and saying, did they break the model for James because he's established because they know he's elite. But then now when you look at the January signings and you see anyone coming in, they're all on lower wages and they're all on incentive-driven contracts and all on Champions League exit clauses. So even though everyone looks at the transfer fee for Enzo and Mudrik, I think if you combine everything at every level, including some of the players that will come into Chelsea a little bit later in their development, and this is just very rough maths, but the average age of player that they signed was about 21 years of age. And the average wage that they're paying is something in the region of £70,000 a week. And that's inclusive of 97000 to Mudrik and a big wage, no doubt, to Enzo Fernandez. And then obviously at the other extreme, you've got players such as Santos and younger players that are going to grow in terms of value over time. So it's a little bit warped because obviously if you're going to buy young and invest in youth and make a series of transactions for your future, then of course not everyone's going to be on sky-high wages. But what is clear is that Chelsea's median wage and strategy of how they negotiated every contract, ranging from someone really young and for the future all the way through to Enzo Fernandez, there's much more of a pattern, there's much more of a strategy. Amounts almost a victim, therefore, of how long this has taken to date, because was this put on the table and agreed quickly? And I suppose there was an opportunity there. Chelsea would argue an offer was placed. Mount just didn't want to take it. But if this was done a month into the new regime, they might have bent a little bit based upon the fact that they were brand new and there was some pre-existing that they had to deal with. And therefore, Mount might have been able to be a bit more aggressive at that point, especially coming off the back of last season. But now so much time feels like it's passed on this saga that I feel like within the negotiation, at this point anyway, it might change in April or May, but at this point, I think Chelsea have got all of the cards because they're being so consistent 
and so strategic and businesslike in how they're negotiating with people. And even though we're getting this caricatured reputation of Todd Bowley just dipping into his back pocket and throwing money at everybody, those are transfer fees. But if you look at the structure in terms of wages and negotiation and incentives and contracts, it's quite streamlined now. And I think that Mount will, in essence, even though it's simplifying the situation, have to buy into that. He won't be staying at the football club or he'll choose not to be staying at the football club come summer. You know, Ben, that's very fascinating. I'm glad you brought the reference to Man United because as Chelsea fans, we don't always pay attention to what's going on in other clubs. And so if they've got a clause where you don't qualify for Champions League, reduce the wages, it seems to be the way modern football is leading towards. And so as Chelsea fans that have supported and watched Mason Mount over the last three, four years and absolutely want him to say, it makes sense that they're kind of transitioning into this new model and you either buy in or you, you're not staying with Chelsea for a long time. But Rahul, I'll pass it over to you to kind of transition into maybe a bit more money spending because we know Chelsea is still linked with everybody in the transfer market. Yeah, and, and you know, this is why I like having Ben on because Jackie and I interact with, with quite a few fans online and on in person. And everyone's like, well, Mason's rejected the first offer. He doesn't want to stay. And like Ben said, that's not the case. Obviously, he needs to find that works best for him and the club needs to find something that works best for them. And everyone kind of meets in the middle and does what they need to do. Uh, but Ben, you mentioned, you know, we've we spoke about the January signings. We're now heading into the summer window and uh, the club have obviously hired personnel and people have come in looking forward ahead of time and, and looking at what we can do in, in, in the transfer windows. So anything you're hearing about the summer plans, obviously there's going to be a lot of offloading, but in terms of incomings, any particular area, maybe a striker that, you may have heard of as you say offloading will be a big part and that is also because on your books you minus any remaining amortization can declare a sale fee as instant profit annually which means that if hypothetically any player went for 40 to 50 million that offsets the annual outlay of four or five signings already there for that year but obviously, the flip side is that all of these smaller fees over the long-term contracts linger on the books as well. So you can kind of argue it both ways. But outgoings are going to be very important to Chelsea. We know that there's a variety of players likely to exit. Pierre-Emerick Bamiyang is almost certain to go. Chelsea still need to resolve the Romelu Lukaku situation. He's at Inter at the moment on loan. Hakim Ziyech nearly went to PSG on loan. It was only what Chelsea called a technical glitch <laughs> and PSG to mismanagement that led to him not moving in the final minutes of the transfer window in January. Very realistic possibility that he goes. Christian Pulisic, interesting one because now he's fit and since the Graham Potter's been largely starting him and yet there's still a feeling that he'll be available to Chelsea and then Mount has a big question mark by him as well and if we then move a little bit deeper i think that if you'd have asked me six months ago i would have said that there was a fair chance kovacic would leave now i think chelsea have u-turned on that and may well try and offer him an extension the angolo kante contract extension is progressing and i would expect that one to get done because kante really wants to stay so it isn't complete at this point but 
compared to six months ago, things are looking very positive and are certainly active and advancing. Conor Gallagher could still leave, and it will be interesting to see what the number is where Chelsea see that as good business. And then, of course, a little bit towards the defence side of things, we should keep an eye out on, to some extent, Koulibaly, even though he may well stay a little bit longer. I just think that Chelsea are quite well stocked now in that area. And they, in my opinion, will start about the game plan for Badi Ashil and Silva and Fafana and, of course, Colwell as well, who is deemed as elite. And therefore, Koulibaly could start to fall down the pecking order relatively quickly. So it'll be interesting to see how they handle that and how quickly. But make no mistake, the Chelsea coaches love Koulibaly. They feel like he's an extremely positive influence. And it's that balance between who's right for your future and who's a leader now. And even if the form of Koulibaly defensively has at times been a bit inconsistent, what he brings generally to the football club is very much liked. And don't underestimate in this state of flux and transition with a big squad how important leaders are. And Koulibaly falls into that category. Kovacic falls into that category. Rhys James falls into that category. Even Asper Laqueta, another one with a question mark over his head. They're all leaders. They're all experienced, which means that if they are the right kind of personalities to play a bit less but still be around, they might be kept for longer. And then even the goalkeeper area, we could and probably will see an outgoing, but it's difficult to predict at this point because I don't think Graham Potter really knows who his number one is. And that's no real surprise because Edward Mendy has been out injured and Kepper has been a phenomenal shot stopper and has kept Chelsea in certain games, but has also made errors and has been inconsistent at other times. So are Chelsea looking for a number one goalkeeper? In which case you could argue that both Kepper and Mendy might not want to stick around and be number two. So that's two goalkeeper outgoings. And then they would have to determine whether Gaga Slonina is ready to step up. And I, I don't think that is the case at this stage. So that's the challenge in all of this. If you have one goalkeeper, then you might need to let two go. So then you might need a number one and a number two. Whereas if you're only signing a number two goalkeeper, Graham Potter would have to then determine which one of Kepa and Mendy so there's a lot of debate and time, I still think, to determine that. But if we start at the back, in terms of who Chelsea are looking at, David Rea and Rob Sanchez are two to keep an eye on, particularly Rea. And Thomas Frank has already said that unless Brentford somehow make Champions League football, Rea will be available for what he termed, quote, at least 40 million. So there's a possibility there. Tottenham are looking as well. Spurs also really like Jordan Pickford, who only just signed a new deal at Everton. But if Everton go down, there's no way that Pickford will stay, especially not knowing that he'll need to fight for his place in the England setup. And doing that from the Championship is very difficult. So I don't think Chelsea and Pickford yet have a particularly firm link. But keep an eye on that one, because if there's a race for Rea and Spurs were to move for Pickford, that could help Chelsea in terms of clearing the path a little bit. Then in midfield, the revamp will continue. 
And Declan Rice is a priority and has been for quite some time. Arsenal are there as well and probably have the edge on Chelsea at this point. But it's really all about the pitch and it's two very different kinds of pitches. So Mikel Arteta is very hands-on. Arsenal have got Champions League football. But Chelsea, as they did with Mudrick, might be able to offer a better kind of long-term vision and financials. So it's all really about Rice's decision. And then Chelsea are going to be hampered, I think, in negotiations by the fact that if they're the ones pushing, as David Moyes has already said, this Enzo Fernandez price, whether rightly or wrongly, is going to be pushed by West Ham United because they believe that in like-for-like positions, Rice should be more expensive than Enzo Fernandez, even though everyone knows that Chelsea chose to overpay for Enzo Fernandez rather than deemed him to be market value. But it isn't only about profiles, it's about contract situations as well. And it's about, much like with Pickford and Everton, whether or not West Ham stay up. And if they don't, then the suitors will be in an even stronger position because there's no way that Rice is going to stick around and play in the championship either. So if West Ham want the money, they're going to have to compromise. And I'm still told that somewhere in the region of lowest end 70 million, highest end 80 million is the ballpark that suitors think is feasible. And there's two sides, of course, to every sale, a buyer and a seller. So West Ham will have a say in all of this for sure. But I think that Chelsea and Arsenal and Manchester United, who have looked as well, all feel like that ballpark is going to be more feasible and doable than necessarily this 100 plus million price tag that's been banded around now for quite some time. So Chelsea will be there and in the race. Other midfielders, Moises Caicedo, could still go, even though he recently signed a new contract with Brighton. So keep an eye on that. And Arsenal, again, might be in the mix as well. And then with Jude Bellingham, I think that Chelsea can't be termed as serious contenders at this stage. There's clearly admiration for Bellingham within the Chelsea hierarchy. But my sense is they'll focus on other priorities and the monetary value of those other priorities will stop them being able to enter the race for Jude Bellingham and simply the fact that there's other clubs, Liverpool, Manchester City, Real Madrid, and some even now say Manchester United that I speak to that are pushing a little bit harder and more significantly than Chelsea. But it's very early stages. I mean, you're planning ahead for the summer window, but it's normal not to show your hand or move particularly aggressively at this point because ultimately you're waiting, especially if you're Chelsea, to see whether you do or don't have Champions League football and that's going to affect the budget. And then we also have to remember that Chelsea have got Malo Gusto and Christopher Nkunku coming in as well, which even though they've allocated that budget and agreed those deals, it's still two extra people added to a massive squad, which again is why the outgoings are so important. And then even further up, I think that a traditional kind of striker is exactly what Chelsea will be looking for. They've got a lot of versatile players, a lot of creative players, a lot of people that can get a balance in terms of output of a sort of equal number of goals and assists. And you want that. But by the same token, it would be nice, I think, from Graham Potter's perspective, to have that focal point that you could say, OK, I'm not looking for 10 goals, 10 assists. I'm looking for reliably 20 plus goals or more a season, even 25 plus goals. Because as soon as you have that in your armory, it makes all the difference in the world. And that's where clubs are looking at 
Victor Osiman in particular. And I think that Napoli will want to keep hold of him, but money talks and he's been there now for quite some time and he said the Premier League is his dream. I think Chelsea again will be on the back foot compared to Manchester United because Victor Osiman nearly moved to Manchester United before he went to Napoli, but was worried about the game time. And at that point, Manchester United on loan and Zaha. And if you're a young player at that point and you're seeing someone even like Igalo and concluding he'll be ahead of you even in the pecking order, you realise you're not going to get the game time. But now, as I understand it, Osiman's spoken to Igalo again about Manchester United for now and is very intrigued. And you look at what Ten Hag is building, and I think Manchester United and Osiman would be a very strong fit. But Chelsea will be there for sure as well. And it's all about Napoli. And whereas Manchester United can't pre-spend anything yet because they don't know who their new owners are going to be, or even if there's going to be new owners, Chelsea can be the ones planning and working on the player side. So that's one to watch, but not the only target. Dusan Vlaevic, as I revealed last year, very realistic possibility that he moves to the Premier League and Chelsea and again Manchester United and even Newcastle could be one to watch. We'll all be there. Ivan Tony could creep in the conversation. A lot will depend on how long the ban is for these alleged betting breaches. But what we can see from all three of those targets is, I think, two things. One, that Aubameyang will go. Two, that Broya will still be there, but he's obviously recovering from a long-term injury. And three, Chelsea want that focal point. Chelsea want that clear target where they not only can build a front line around with all these other versatile players, but they can be reliant on that type of player chipping in with 10, 15 goals even in a bad season and 25 to 35 in a good season and I look at Salah even though he's playing very wide for Liverpool as an example of that everyone's been speaking this season about Salah being out of form but his numbers are still excellent Chelsea would bite your hand off for a player with his numbers <laughs> but his form isn't quite what it has been in previous seasons and that's my point in all of this if the player doesn't do well they're not in that sort of Havertz territory of being three to seven goals plus penalties or including penalties even they're getting 15 in a bad season and they're getting as I say 30 plus in a good season and that I think is the type of profile that Chelsea want it's not easy to find and on top of that we also have to point out that they will want in an ideal world to sign Jawa Felix permanently oh, yeah. And this is the sort of challenge and balance, once again, that what do you need for Felix? Uh, Atleti would argue 85 million or somewhere in that ballpark to have a serious conversation with them. Then you've got Nkunku coming in. And on top of that, you've still got that desire to make that flagship central midfield signing. So what's the number on whoever that player is? Well, let's just use the Rice valuation and take the average between 70 and 80, so 75 million. So 75 million for Rice, 85 million, let's just say, for Jawa Felix. Already you need outgoings. Otherwise, once again, you're going to be spending with a few more additions, somewhere between 250 and 300 million. If Chelsea need two or three more, Dusan Vlerovic, I would have thought, will cost 70 
to 85 million. It will all depend on Juventus' situation and maybe the player driving an exit. But these are big, big outlays. So I think outgoings are going to be the starting point for Chelsea to clear their squad size and bring in some income that they can put on the books annually to balance things. And then we'll start seeing how much wiggle room there is left to enter these races for the Rices or the of this world. But I think where it's become a bit warped, in my opinion, is just that everyone's looking at the January window and essentially saying, because of that, Chelsea will be getting Osaman and Bryce and Bellingham <laughs> and Rea. And you're like, well, OK, add all those numbers up and make it make sense. So there is going to be a balance. And I guess the final thing that I would say is because there was more of a strategy from a recruitment level and now Lawrence Stewart has come in and he was still active from afar in January and is going to be very important to Chelsea, Christopher Vivelle as well, and then Paul Winstanley. So those three names and then Joe Shields, as we're seeing, has been moving around youth and Lavia could be one to watch as well. There's a few Premier League clubs certainly upping their game around him. But the strategy is there clearly now. And if this strategy is about jumping ahead of rivals, buying young and offering long-term contracts, then by default, some of those players, even as early as next season, have to start breaking through. And if those players are breaking through and playing regularly, you should need less and less and less and less. And that, I think, is what takes people by surprise about Liverpool and why people wonder how they've suddenly gone from challenging for a quadruple to winning nothing this season. And everyone's kind of moaning from the Liverpool end about revamps. And it feels like there's a lot of work to do. And sometimes the revamp can catch you by surprise because you've done so well with your recruitment, you've got stability and it just ticks along season after season for three, four, five seasons before it suddenly hits you. We've got to start this gutting of our squad again. And Chelsea are obviously starting the process now of doing that which means if it works next season or the season after, by the next, I would say, one to five windows, you should start needing less and less and less and less, which means even though it excites fans to say, this player's informed, let's buy them, and this player, and this player, you have to start looking at the project as only being a success if Chelsea are needing less and less and less and less, which means that once they do that outgoings and get that goal scorer, that central midfielder and probably that goalkeeper, things should start to calm down a little bit because if it doesn't calm down, then it means that they haven't bought well. Yeah, look, it's it's uh, we have a lot of players like you mentioned and this summer is going to be interesting uh, in the sense that, like you mentioned, a lot of offloading has to happen up front before we can even think about spending some of these big amounts on some of the other players, which concerns me just a little bit because I'm... Um, like you've mentioned, Arsenal, Manchester United, we've even spoken about City, Liverpool, Madrid, uh, in the case of Bellingham, if that's what we want to do. The longer it takes us to offload, we may miss out on a, on a day because we've gotten a, a lot anyway in, in January and last summer. Uh, but you're right. I think once we kind of get to, through this next window, we shouldn't have to be spending two, three, four hundred million every window because... That's not the point of this project, like you mentioned, Ben. So appreciate the update on the on the summer, and I'm sure we'll be talking a little more frequently as we head into that period. Uh, but Jackie has some questions about Todd Bowley and uh, you know his involvement, so I'll pass it over to him. Yeah, Ben, thanks for all the transfer updates there. With regards to Todd Bowley, I think as a Chelsea fan, Raul and I grew up 
mostly in the Roman Abramovich era, and I think it was safe to say we didn't hear or see much of our owner unless there was time to, unfortunately, fire a manager. And that was the extent of what we knew as Chelsea fans. That's the ownership, and that's what they do. The little that I'm seeing so far, at least in the early stages of this new ownership, is they're very involved. And when I say involved, it's absolutely amazing to see them in the transfer windows, talking about rebuilding Stamford Bridge. But then I try to see them on training ground in, in some pictures and they're coming to every match and you see the celebrations after we beat Dortmund and that's lovely to see. But then you see comments after we have a poor game against Everton. I'm just wondering, because we're not used to seeing ownership so close to the project. Now, of course, it's early days. What's the impact of Todd Bowley and his team so close to the project right now and maybe to the players even on the training ground? I think in essence, when you pay 2.3 billion as the base price and then you invest 1.75 billion, you're entitled to be hands-on. And on top of that, there's been so much upheaval at the club in terms of board change and recruitment, not just on the football side, that they've had to be hands-on. And as the project stabilises, I think that Bowley will start to delegate more and more. And we've already seen that go on the stadium redevelopment side. It's largely being led by Jonathan Goldstein, another board member at the club. And on the women's side, we often see Barbara Sharon attend games. She's on the board and her and also Danny are the sort of representatives that are liaising a bit more with the fans. So it's quite clear that the ownership group are trying to use the full array of board members and those connected to the ownership. And then you have all of the new senior figures that they've brought in, such as Paul Winstanley and Christopher Vivelle, Joe Shields, and who knows, there might be more as well. And that has become the leadership team. But of course, Bowley's always been the face, he's always been the visual, and he is seemingly quite ever-present. And then Berdag Agbali is representing the majority owner and perhaps doesn't get as much of the limelight, but behind the scenes has just as much, if not more, control. I mean, Boli and Agbali have practically been surgically attached for uh, the last eight months and make decisions concurrently about not just the football side, but the business as well. And Egbali has shown his involvement and hands-on nature, first of all, when he joined in wanting to learn very quickly about every aspect of the football club, but now, as I think is more common knowledge, in recruitment. And it was clear with Mudrik, for example, that that entire deal in terms of the negotiation was very much led by Egbali, and he was heavily involved as well within the Enzo Fernandez deal. So it isn't just Todd Bowley, but the ownership group are very visible. And the interesting thing about that is that not only are they ambitious and very strategic and still think that they're only at the very beginning of this journey, and that's why there's a lot of change of need to be very hands-on because they haven't built the multi-club model yet in a practical sense. They've only just recruited a range of new people. They've gone through two managers in their first season. They've had some challenges on the football side of things. They 
have had two very different windows, one under Thomas Tuchel and one under a new recruitment team. So there's been a lot to do. And as things calm down, the roles will perhaps be a bit more defined. But the interesting thing that I always repeat that we have to remember is that they're not just owners in this context. So if we were to compare either Egbali or Boli directly to Abramovich, then of course there would be a stark difference. But Todd Boley is not just a Chelsea owner, he's the chairman and he was the interim sporting director. So therefore, how visible was Bruce Buck or Marina? And if Boley amalgamates during a lot of his period so far, those three titles of how he has surrendered the interim tag, but that doesn't mean that he's not still a big part of the recruitment model. So in essence, if Abramovich was stand-in sporting director plus chairman plus owner, I think he would have to be visible because you expect your chairman to be seen day by day. There's a number of managers. Graham Potter said it himself when he was at Brighton. He spoke to the chairman basically every day. I've been in many football clubs as a consultant. And when you're up in the offices, the chairman is there day on day. It's a full-time role. It's not something that you can really do from a distance, even if you're not physically there, it's taking up at least 40 hours of your week and probably closer to 80. So when everyone sort of looks at Bowley and they see the role, from the outside in it gets caricatured and actually it's very normal, but it just depends what hat he's wearing. And that's the dynamic I think that Thomas Tuchel struggled with. Was he talking to the owner? or the sporting director and now are people dealing with the chairman or the owner and at what point because of the money they've paid and the dual titles they hold can these individuals like Boley and Egbali play an ownership card and the reassuring thing I think is that they're not really the kind of characters to pull rank but they could and I think that's the point in all of this so if you were normally dealing with a sporting director, they'd be on a par with the manager. And many managers might even think they're above the sporting director in terms of if both have an opinion and the decision has to be made, who gets the final say? But if your interim sporting director happens to be your boss and is new to the club and is deciding on a whole new range of things from board upheaval to strategy, it can be a dynamic that takes some time to get used to. And then I think with Bowley in particular, he is just the type of character that is enjoying the challenge and wants to be at the games and is very visible. And you can see there's that raw emotion. And with Dortmund, it manifested in a kind of whoop and a hug of Potter, which we filmed at CBS with a beer in his hand. And unfortunately, when doorstepped on a fan phone after Everton, he said something a little bit more offensive. And this is the kind of challenge whereby, for me anyway, the ownership group are going to have to learn that for whatever reason, because the Dodgers is a massive franchise, there's more day-on-day -day scrutiny. And every single thing they do, from great meal, wonderful food, right through to a swear word about a performance or a yelp with a beer in hand. Walk along the pitch towards the tunnel with a shirt untucked next to Hans-Jörg Weiss. 
these things are going to get spotted. They're going to go viral. The likes on social media even get seen and get thousands of comments. So they're going to either have to fuel it because they don't mind, and then they'll be more transparent. Or alternatively, they're going to have to rein in those type of comments because eventually you get caught out. And I think with the Everton game, it was a case of getting caught out. Now, Todd Bowley may not mind. He actually might think that saying something like that is very beneficial because the fan base probably agreed after that Everton game with his comments. But obviously, you also have to think about when Graham Potter sees that, what kind of message does that send internally and to the players as well? And going to go down well and i don't know the answer to this but if it was me and i played in that game or if i was potter and i just basically come out of a difficult spell where i'd got the backing of the ownership group and then i heard the owner say that even if it wasn't directed at me and even if it was just really irritating and annoying after everton equalized in the last minute the manager can't be loving hearing that in public because he knows that it's going to do the rounds he knows that it's going to fuel the fire so that's sort of something i think they have to consider when do they want to speak and what manner do they speak and obviously in the case of the everton game it sort of worked against Bowley a little bit because he ultimately said something very raw and it did the rounds some people obviously agreed with him but i think within the club they'd have preferred it if he hadn't said that whereas <laughs> with the Dortmund thing, the same kind of raw reaction went down very well because it, it backed up this narrative we've heard for quite some time, which is that the ownership group really want Potter to succeed and Bowley's very emotional and raw reaction going straight down to him to give him a hug kind of showed that. So it obviously works both ways, but I think this is just the new Chelsea. It's the new norm. And I don't see Bowley backing off the visibility. I think that the structure will take care of itself over time. But I expect Todd Bowley to still be very open, very transparent and ultimately uh, a big presence at Cobham and Stamford Bridge for his tenure at the football club. It's fascinating to hear it's this. Like I said, when we when we started the conversation around Abramovich and going to Bowley, you can see a completely different set of ways of dealing with things. And I think, again, lovely to hear your perspective of him wearing multiple hats in this case. And so... Obviously, we should expect something a little bit different. Overall, I think it'll take some time to get settled and understand what he's going to be doing day-to-day -day versus when he backs off. And a lot of Chelsea fans did agree with his assessment of the Everton game. But yes, it's definitely difficult, I, I would imagine, from Graham Potter's side and from the player's side to hear that coming from the owner. But enough about Chelsea for just a minute. I want to pass it back to Rahul to talk about a sale that's ongoing in the Premier League, and that's Manchester United. The the high level behind it, Ben, is although we're not the biggest fans of Man United, they were a thorn in our side for many a year when Rahul and I were growing up supporting Chelsea. So we have an invested stake to see what's going on in the Man United side. So Rahul, I'll pass it to you. Yeah, I, I think you put it very well, Jackie. Um, so just high level, Ben, I know you've been involved with the sale of Manchester United. There's been quite a bit of activity in the last few months, in, in fact. Uh, but where do we currently stand and, and you know, where are we headed with this sale? Uh, and do you think maybe by the summertime this will be done? Or is there more of a timeline in the sense that there's no urgency, but the Glazers ultimately would like to, to sell and move on? Well, I think as Chelsea fans will know, I love a takeover. I've covered many. <laughs> and 
the synergy here is that the Manchester United sale is being handled by Rain Group, the right. same merchant bank in New York that ended up selling Chelsea to Clear Lake Bowley. So they know how to get takeovers done fast, but it's very different circumstances. And I don't think that the Glazers will be putting a specific timeline on it with the same urgency as Chelsea, other than the desire from all parties to try and get it done towards the end of or at the end of the season. And the reason for that is because the best time to transition, if the Glazers choose an outright sale, is obviously over the summer period as the transfer window opens and when you've got a pre-season to start to build ahead towards next season. If the Glazers go down the route of staying and minority investment, I suppose it's a little bit different because then the operational side of the football club doesn't really change. So you need less of a transition with a minority investor. And as a consequence, when that minority investor comes in may not be as important. So in a best case scenario, of course, all parties would like something done before the season is out. But takeovers take as long as they take. And where we're at at the moment is that second offers have come in. And broadly speaking, that can be equated to the part of the Chelsea sale where the serious suitors came forward. And you may remember that after we heard about the Saudis or a Turkish businessman, it was whittled down to the main contenders, which ended up being people like Clear Lake Bowley and Harris Blitzer and Sir Martin Broughton, Steve Paliuka, the Ricketts family and so on. And that's kind of where we're at right now. But why it's not a particularly neat comparison is that Chelsea, with a lower price than Manchester United, had a high volume of credible suitors, I would say between eight and ten, that got whittled down to those few groups. And then, of course, a preferred bidder. Whereas with Manchester United, the starting point has been a lot of interest and finances and maybe those that will take a minority stake, but far less outright bidders. And as a result, now the second offers have gone in. We wait and see whether the next step is a reduction in the field and another round of bidding, which I think is the most likely scenario, or with less suitors, if one is just put through into the preferred bidder status and a period of exclusivity to get the deal done. So those are the two options. And next week and maybe even into early April, Rain Group will assess the offers because these ones are more binding. The first stage was indicative offers and they don't really mean a great deal because you bid to get through to the next stage. And by getting through to the next stage, you then hold meetings in Manchester and you see a series of presentations and also more information is dropped into what in Manchester United's case is called the data room and that allows you to really begin to look at the numbers properly and make a more accurate valuation. And then the second offer that's been made is more concrete. And that should allow the Glazers to determine what approach they want to make. But still, full due diligence hasn't been done. So because Manchester United is a public company, there is a lot of information out there about it. But the suitors still won't know things like projected costs for redevelopment of uh, Old Trafford based on what the Glazers have already outlined, any player bonuses, any 
League versus non-Champions League. They'll, of course, know the basics, but not the specifics. Any commercial deal, public knowledge, but are definitely happening. Any pre-season plans, tax due diligence, property due diligence. These kind of things still all need to be looked at to come to a specific and accurate number. So then we're left with either option A, an outright sale of at least the Glazers 69%. And I think that my understanding, the Glazers are still very prepared to sell for the right price. It's just all about the number. So if that scenario happens, it's likely to be either Sheikh Jassim of Qatar or Sir Jim Ratcliffe of Ineos. And both have placed second offers. And even though people will talk about Sheikh Jassim having almost unlimited money, in essence, the two bids are not that far apart at this stage, which is why I think if the Glazers think they're getting towards a number whereby they're prepared to sell, both will probably be put through so there's competitive tension. And then it just becomes a bit of a bidding war. If alternatively, the Glazers choose to stay, then you have a minority investor such as Elliott Sports Management, who used to own Milan. Or alternatively, you could see pairings of groups coming together in order to almost form a new consortium. And Chelsea sort of did this to some extent. It wasn't all via rain, but you may remember that Clear Lake Bowley were there from the start. And even though people only knew about Bowley, it was always kind of clear late Bowley. So the fact that an investment company crept up and became public knowledge was not a twist. They were always kind of partnered. But the Hans-Jörg Weiss element was separate to begin with and ended up combining. So to bolster a bid, you might find that certain groups combine. And then the other scenario in all of this is that you might have laddered investment, which I think if a situation presented itself to the Glazers that was viable, they might go for. And the reason for that is because landed investment will see, a bit like 49ers Enterprises at Leeds United, a contractual obligation or ability to trigger increases in stakes over time to eventually get to control of the football club. And obviously those terms we won't go into because you can negotiate them in any way you like. But in essence, one scenario is that you start with 10 or 20%. And then after a certain period, you can double it to 40. And after a certain period, you can get to 51. And then who knows where it goes from there. But how you define the price point at each point you increase is a point. In this one scenario, there's lots of scenarios, but in this one scenario, the Glazers could say, okay, we think our club's worth 6 billion, 7 billion, 8 billion, but we'll give you 15% now at 5 billion. However, there is a contractual obligation or ability or whatever is negotiated that you double it in 2025. But then they may gamble on their backing, will be worth more in 2025 and say that the valuation made will be in 2025 rather than at a fixed rate, which means that then the next 15% that you take you have to pay more for because the club is worth more at that time. So if they genuinely believe the price should be higher, laddered investment could be in their benefit. It can work the other way, whereby whoever invests by the time you get to 2025 and beyond sees that the football club is worth less 
and then ends up getting their next 15% for less than their first 15%. So this is a very complicated scenario, but it might be something that the Glazers also entertains. There's a variety of different scenarios. I still don't think an outright sale is off the cards. It's very clear that Sheikh Jassim, from Jim Ratcliffe's perspective, if we're only talking about his love for the club and his plans for the club, what he wants to do with Manchester United isn't that dissimilar to Sheikh Jassim, but the Jassim group can offer a lot more financially if they choose to, and also maybe provide business relationships in the Middle East and North Africa and Qatar in particular for the Glazers for life after Manchester United. And that might be a very significant factor in all of this as well. So even though people will predict who's going to win, that's very transfer orientated. And you may remember from the Chelsea takeover, I was not about generating fake headlines or clickbait. These are slow processes compared to transfers. So picking a favourite, picking a winner, saying who's a front runner, mentioning even a specific price, it's all quite early at this stage because it will change within the due diligence. So we know who's got the financial muscle. We know that Sheikh Jassim is ambitious and confident in his bid, but Ratcliffe saying the same and then these secretive groups are not as known which means that it can be a little bit irresponsible to be warping it in favour of only the public bidders because we're yet to see the Glazer's hand and we don't know yet who some of these other groups are. So the key thing next to look out for, I would say, in the next two weeks max, maybe even in the next seven days, is who's put through because that's when the Glazers will either show their hand or prove that nobody is quite there yet to the point where they've made a decision. And obviously, if they only put through the two outright bidders to another stage of bidding, we know they want to sell, which is arguably the most important thing to Manchester United fans because they want the Glazers out. If they put through only a minority, they'll be outraged because the two outright... And if they put through a mix of everything, then in all likelihood, they're either undecided or nobody's hit the number yet that they're looking for. And the final thing I'd say on the number is just in a transfer, if I said to you, a player is going to go for between 4.5 and 6 million, I'd be entitled to do that responsibly as a journalist, because there's not a massive amount of difference in the context of negotiations, especially not for Premier League clubs to go up and down by half a million to 1.5 million. But in takeover terms, if it's 4.5 billion versus 6 billion, there's an astronomical amount of difference between those. That's four Newcastle Uniteds. That's 66% of the base rate of Chelsea Football Club. So it's been interesting because some people have flown around numbers like under 5 billion, and some people are alleging Sheikh Jassim's bid is 6 billion. And now today I read that it's back at 5 billion. And to sort of U-turn or it's different media perhaps, reversing or increasing from 4.5 to 6, to me, that's a little bit irresponsible because in essence, there's such a vast amount of money that you're wildly inaccurate if you said it was 4.5 billion and it's 6. And my understanding is that the Glazers haven't given a number to anybody. They've got a number in mind as a family, but even people connected to the Manchester United sale directly are not of what the magic number is. If they were, they'd be able to 
the job a lot quicker. And then from the seller's point of view, they don't yet want to give the number because they've not seen the full buyer's hand. But the buyers know it's got to be their best and final offer. They're obviously going to be trying to put down the best possible deal. So if you're Sheikh Jassim and you sense Ratcliffe has bid less than you, you don't need to bid six, seven, eight billion at this stage. You just need to bid to get through to the next stage. It's only when it gets to the point where perhaps the rain group, and I don't even know if they would say this, but if the rain group hypothetically said, this is your final offer and they're not going to do business with you unless you up it significantly, then at that point, a group would have to determine, are we being played or is this legit? And if we don't go up, are we going to be out the race? But right now, it's not like that. It's just about getting through to the next stage, following the procedure. So the last thing you want to bulldoze in with seven billion or six billion, if all of your rivals are at four and a half billion, and nobody's stupid in all of this, it's lawyers and financial experts, which again means that if you're deemed to bid too high, too early and recklessly, then the Glazers will probably still turn around and go, great, we'll still get them up on that offer even more. So it's a game on valuation, which is why the situation is in flux at the moment. But in essence, I think that the Glazers' hand heading into stage three, whether that's a variety of groups whittled down or whether that's one singular group, the Glazers' hand is going to be shown. And as a result, we should, by early April at the latest, be a lot clearer as to what the Glazers' intentions are. And then if everything goes according to plan, either an investor or an outright owner, is on track still to come in either towards the end of the season or at the end of the season, which is ultimately only a few months away. And this is why we love to hear from you about takeovers because you're you're the expert in and very close or you know understand how this all works and and presented respectfully and rightfully. So we we appreciate that, Ben. But I think we're coming up to an hour, and and I know. Um, we kind of want to wrap it up here, but we appreciate your time. Thanks for jumping on. It's always a pleasure chatting with you, but uh, that wraps it up, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Please continue to subscribe, like, and follow us. It's at the Premier Chels on all podcast providers, Instagram, and on Twitter, it's at Premier Chels. And for further updates, check out Ben's Twitter. It's at Jacob's Ben. Uh, there's always something he's reporting on and, and, and presenting, so definitely check that out. Uh, but we will be back, but until then, stay safe and up the Chels. Hey guys, the Premier Chels is sponsored by Kickoff Coffee. They are a top quality artisanal roasted coffee. In other words, they're Champions League winner and Premier League winner every single time. They deliver fresh bags directly to your home so you don't have to go to a coffee shop and pick up something. And the best part about them is every bag gives back to soccer charities. 10% of the proceeds go to organizations that use soccer to promote youth social development in the underserved areas. Use our code TPCOFFEE15 to get 15% off your order. You can order at kickoffcoffeeco.com or check out the links on our social media. Thanks.